Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and our non-binary babies out there, because there are some. Welcome to the very first episode of Live from the CRJ, the official podcast of the Dillard University Center for Racial Justice. I am Lawrence Weber. My pronouns are he, him, they, and them. My name is Tia Suggs. I'm the project coordinator for the Center for Racial Justice, and my pronouns are she and her. And this is our very first episode. I am very excited. I know you're probably very excited, too. It's been a while. (laughs) So, like I said, I am actually a new addition to the Center for Racial Justice. I'm the new project assistant, and I hope I have not broken anything so far. (laughs) I'm more than sure I haven't, and if I did, they would definitely tell me. Y'all would definitely tell me if I broke something (laughs) so far, right? Definitely. (laughs) Okay. So for those of you who do not know what our center is about, let's tell tell you a little bit about the Dillon University Center for Racial Justice. Now, our mission here at DU Center for Racial Justice is to bring systemic change to communities of color and, and via various things. Can you... Go ahead and expound on that, Ms. Tia. Yes, the Center for Racial Justice is a reservoir for lectures, research, advocacy training, student travel, civic engagement, and political participation. The Center for Racial Justice provides paid internship opportunities within the center and throughout the community to mold the next generation of equity leaders. And we have been we have been doing a lot. I mean, I have been here since August and in the short month that I've been here, we've been all over the place. Uh, the most recent we did was the 12 Acts of Kindness over uh, of um, based on Muhammad Ali's teachings. And that championed a number of young people in the community just to work with those acts, you know, basically work with those acts of kindness um, and, and be a change in their communities. And I'll just say this, when I first started here was very, it was kind of a, it was a big change for me. But moving forward, it has been a change that I am so glad that I that I am a part of because, I mean, I have seen the various events that we have done, the various things that we have talked about and just and being particularly overwhelmed at how amazing you I don't know how you guys do it. I'm still I'm still in on I work here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like um working at the center, we do a lot of events within the community. We do a lot of events for our students. Um we champion for a lot of uh social injustices happening within our community in New Orleans and around the world, around the country. Um the last event we did was the Muhammad Ali Twelve Acts of Kindness and before that uh, we took I took one of my student interns to Washington, D.C., and we went to the Congressional Black Caucus Conference, which was amazing, which if we could afford to, we'd take every single student at Dillard because that's how relevant and important those type those topics were at the conference. And I think another big thing about that was the notion of just as a former, as alumni, as a former student here, a lot of times 
our students, bless them, they have a tendency to be very focused on their studies. They're focused on their studies. They're focused on their work. And when they get that sort of little bit of kick in the pants to certain injustices out there, it opens up their mind. It opens up their world. And that is how they... I hate to use the term woke because it's just been kind of perverted in the last few years. Um, but it, it, for lack of a better term, it just kind of awakens them to the change that they can be in the world, which I absolutely love. And I absolutely love being a part of. Yeah. And one thing I definitely believe in is anyone can be an activist, uh, any age, any color, any, anyone anybody and um the biggest thing is bringing awareness and making people aware and the wokeness is being aware and bringing exposure to social injustices and that's what i love about our center is we're preparing and building up youth activists within college within high schools within middle schools like we're any school that's willing to take us we're coming and we have a social justice training that we do to teach uh, any age group about social injustices and picking out discrimination and learning about all type of um, issues that's going on in our community. Absolutely. And speaking of social and so speaking of social injustices and people who are working in social injustices, we have an amazing guest coming to here. Um, let's talk about Mr. Bankole Thompson, who is a journalist in the Detroit, Michigan area. He has been working for more than 20 years and has just released his fifth book by the name of Fiery Conscience. Um, he signed our books, and I'm very happy about that. Um, but I got to, both of us actually, got to sit down and give have quite a deep and intrusive talk with him. So that's what you're going to be listening to right now. All right, you are listening to Live from the CRJ. This is our very first inaugural podcast. And I think we struck it very lucky this time around because for our very, very, very first podcast, we have... Quite a person with us. Um, um, we are talking to Mr. Bankole Thompson. He is, of course, one of the board. He was um, one of the members of our board of directors here at CRJ. He is a journalist. He calls, uh, what would you call yourself, a uh, civil rights journalist? Yes, um, uh, a, a national civil rights journalist. Um, racial equity. There we go. Economic inequality. <laughs> um, and of course... He Poverty, also, democracy, you name it. There you go. Dean of the Pulse yeah. Institute. Uh, he's a columnist for Detroit News. <laughs> now, keep in mind, in <laughs> doing my research for this interview, I was like, okay, I only have about 60, 70 cards. He's going to end up filling like all of them <laughs> up. You know? so, Those are too many questions, brother, but let's, let, let, let's get it going. Thanks. Yes. Listen. And uh, of course, <laughs> he is here with his fifth, not first, second, third, or fourth, but fifth book, Fiery Conscience. Um, and I, I've read a little bit of it. 
And we, of course, had a talk earlier and uh, wow, (laughs) that's all I can say. It's really all I can say is wow. So this is Mr. Bankolay Thompson. I wish I could if I wish I had long enough arms to reach and press the (laughs) the um, the applause button. But unfortunately, I can't hold on. Wait a second. See, there it is. There it is. There we go. (laughs) So like I said, we have we have an applause button that probably not will not be used regularly on this show but right. hey it's our first yeah. show who knows look, uh, <laughs> I, i'm listen uh, uh, um uh brother uh, lawrence i'm glad uh to be here uh the home of the blue devils i'm glad to be um uh, that you all have asked me to be the inaugural guest for this podcast for the center for racial justice here at dillard i think that the center does a great work a uh, great job in uh, not only uh, advocating for racial economic justice issues, but uh, inculcating in the students who are involved with this center, uh, the leadership qualities, the interests uh, to prepare them to become uh, effective uh, next generation leaders. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is very important, especially uh, in this dispensation that we're in, uh, you know, some of us call it the, the, the Black Lives Matter era movement or whatever movement you call it, you call it. Uh, this is a very important dispensation and it's good to have uh, a center like the Center for Racial Justice here at Dillard uh, under Dr. Ishmael Ashraf's leadership and all of you who are involved here in terms of, you know, advocating uh, for, for the rights of black folk and other people, marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I'm not sure if somebody has already told you, but well, first of all, welcome to New Orleans. Well, yeah. welcome back because you've been yeah, here. Yeah, I've been here many before. times, yeah. Um, and... <laughs> I'm not sure if you have been around. Have you gotten Have you gotten jambalaya? Um, I think it's a little <laughs> bit too warm for. I think it's still a little bit too warm for gumbo. So yeah. I was. It's uh, coming. No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have jambalaya yet. I'm gonna be here for a, for a couple of days, but um, I had some oysters uh yesterday evening i was at a dinner meeting so i had some oysters so um i think brave um, gentlemen oh yeah i I think um, (laughs) you know with oysters i'm fulfilling uh real sudden hospitality and what it's like and i still gotta go to dookie chase Uh, it's one of my favorite places whenever i'm here i go to dookie chase to basically pay homage and have some of that you know uh, good uh, soul food. It, it's it's funny that you mentioned Dookie Chase because um, there are quite a few. <laughs> the The Chase family is is right. a, is a it's has a, a long yeah, Chase, here yes, in New yes. Orleans. Um, I have personally met Leah. I did meet Leah before she passed. Um, one of the Edgar Chases. <laughs> Because there's so many of them. (laughs) One of the Edgar Chases I had a chance to speak with because he, if I'm not mistaken, is a Dillard alumni. Yeah. So, like I said, the the Chase family runs very deep in this city. Um, First of all, thank you so much for being our very first guest. That's that's always fun. That's always fun to kick things off. And, And if anything, that's definitely kicking things off right. So... You are a journalist. And this is this is the funniest thing, because, again, I was not brought up as a journalist. My area is, of course, writing my screenwriting theater. Um, But hopefully I'm doing well. Yeah. Well, it's 
you know, I'm I'm crossing the fingers. Yeah. <laughs> like from from a journalist, I'm like I'm the one doing the interviewing this time. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, you're the, you're turning the tables upside. There Normally, I'm I'm the one interviewing <laughs> folk, but no, but but you know, I I feel very strongly about the role of the media. I feel very strongly about the the role that we could play in a democracy. Mm-hmm. I feel very strongly uh, in terms of the First Amendment, a constitutional right and how significant that is for an independent free press, for us to be a check and balance uh, to government and the status quo. And I believe that the media could do good. I believe that uh, journalists could be uh, resourceful agents of democracy and human rights. I believe that the media, when used effectively uh, in the service of the public good, uh, can be a powerful tool to liberate our communities uh, liberate our nation. And so what I've sought to do uh, as a journalist and in the space that I'm in is to be able to use uh, my platforms uh, to not only speak through to power, but also to hold the powerful accountable. Uh, because uh, we have to, you know, Frederick Douglass said that uh, freedom uh, is not given without a demand and never has and never will. And uh, that is such a powerful statement. And I think that uh, this era and in this moment where we are in our democracy, uh, we have to remember those words of Douglas that freedom is never given without a demand, never has and never will. And uh, it, it calls upon us as journalists who are concerned about these issues of racial justice, racial equity, economic inequality to basically uh, advance and champion those issues and to open more room uh, in what I call our palace of democracy. Absolutely, absolutely. So I have to get to your background and yeah. to where, what essentially brought you to journalism. Right. Um, I know for me, um, I usually go places where I don't see myself. And the reason why I say that, I mean, when I was here, I think this was my, oh goodness, uh, sophomore year back in the days where dinosaurs walked the planet. Um, And the one thing that I wanted to be was an actor. And I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be an actor. And then one of my peers just came out of nowhere and decided to say, well, because you're of your size, I'm not sure if the listening audience knows or sees a picture, but I'm a rather big guy. Keep in mind, this was 2003, 2004. They did not think that I would be as um, successful in the role of an actor. I will probably be relegated to playing um uh, to playing stereotypical roles or character roles that I wouldn't be essentially successful. So that clicked in my mind of, I guess, and I'm thinking, how many other people feel like this? How many people who may be, who may be big, who may be of tall, short, who may be Latino, Asian, queer, trans, who else is thinking like this? And I was like, well, if you're not going to give me a job, I'm going to start writing, give myself a job. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And and like I said, was there something in your That sparked my interest. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so it's very interesting you said that because, you know, I, I have always felt... 
Um, I've I've always loved writing. Uh, um, uh, um, I've always been very expressive, mm-hmm. and and I've found writing to be a niche, and because I've always loved reading, I've always uh, you know been exposed to um, you know a litany of books, and I remember. Um, a long time ago, my uh, late godfather, George Haley, uh, the brother of the author of Roots, Alex Haley, mm-hmm. always talked about the power of black writers and how black writers can change and shape history, uh, can shape civilization, but also how black writers can rescue black humanity uh, the achievements and the greatness of black humanity from the clutches of obscurity. Mm-hmm. Uh, by that I mean how as black writers, as black journalists, uh, we can talk about the history of our communities. We can talk about uh, the significance of our, 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 our communities and the achievements of those in our community who have made, you know, such, uh, who have done great things and, and be able to tell it in a way that our white counterparts cannot, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, they, they don't come from that background of race and class experience exactly. for the most part. So I've always found writing to be a liberating tool uh, to use it as a vehicle uh, to tell the story of black humanity and by extension tell the story of our collective humanity as individuals. Exactly. And that space I think is, is so important uh, because if we don't tell our story, and I hear this all the time, it may sound like a cliche, if we don't tell our story then no one else would tell our story. And I think it is incumbent on us as black writers and black journalists and uh, uh, storytellers, opinion shapers, uh, to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to share a quick story. Uh, uh, Back in 2003, I was in in Washington, D.C., and um, my godfather, George Haley, invited me to come with him as his guest at at a reception uh, that Jet Magazine had uh, for the late Simeon Booker. Uh, Simeon Booker was the first black reporter for the Washington Post. Oh. Uh, Simeon Booker was the, uh, the Washington bureau chief for Jet Magazine uh, for 50 years. And this was the 50-year, the golden jubilee of, uh, of, of Jet, uh, Simeon Booker serving as the Washington bureau chief. So I went to this reception with George Haley. He and Simeon Booker are old friends and so forth. Uh, and both of them are now ancestors. And I went to this reception and, and met a lot of, um, you know, black luminaries. And, you know, being in there, you know, this was Jet Ebony Magazine, you know, but it dawned on me uh, that, uh, you know, I was in a room that, that honored and recognized uh, the trailblazing impact of the late uh, Laron Bennett who was uh, the editor of Ebony Magazine and wrote the book America Before the Mayflower, mm-hmm. uh, one of the, 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 the black intellectual media giants uh, during the civil rights movement. Why am I saying this? Because uh, uh, that collective of, of black writers, black journalists, uh, black thinkers, and, and some may call it the black intelligentsia, have an important role in our democracy have an important role in championing racial justice. So the work that I do and uh, in being able to use my pen as an opinion columnist 
and being able to speak to issues as dean of the Pulse Institute and so many other things. And now, of course, I was um, uh, named to the National Board of Directors of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, the SCLC, which is the, the civil rights organization that f was founded by Dr. King uh, and which, was, which led the civil rights movement. I was uh, nominated to the National Board by Dr. Bernard Lafayette, uh, who's a national civil rights leader, one of Dr. King's top lieutenants, Dr. Lafayette, has been a mentor of mine for almost two decades. So my point is that uh, we, uh, in the space that I mean, I feel very strongly about the role that we have to play as journalists, as writers, uh, with the pen and the voice uh, to speak to the power. Exactly. And since you wanted to kick off the media, let's go ahead and kick off the media. Right. Because... In recent years, especially with the advent of uh, the previous administration, it seems as though media, especially media that is focused on people of color and various various different minorities in the in the country, have kind of been under attack. I mean, I'm, media in general. Uh, former President Trump was not a fan of certain, of clearly certain medias, and he was very vocal about that. Um, the one thing that pops into my mind is CNN's Jim Acosta, who he revoked his press pass because he simply didn't like being questioned. <laughs> and that's not something that I have ever seen before. And right. I may not be, I may not be old, but right. I, I'm definitely, I've definitely been on, on the earth for a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of a while um, to know that, okay, that just seems weird. That doesn't seem like it's something that would happen in this space. So can you talk to me a little bit about if you have felt like under essentially under attack just because <laughs> of your place as a journalist and yeah. notably as a journalist of color right. who is in like racial in the trenches of racial justice. Yes, exactly. I, I, I do, uh, uh, Brother Lawrence, because, in fact, um, uh, my book, Fiery Conscience, the first chapter in the book is titled Putting White Supremacy on Trial. Mm -hmm. And uh, the chapter is written by Len Niehoff, uh, who's a, a nationally known First Amendment lawyer. And he was a lawyer uh, that the Detroit News hired, uh, where I am an opinion columnist. Uh, the Detroit News hired him, the late uh, publisher, John Wallman, uh, hired Len Niehoff and another lawyer called uh, Jim Stewart. And both of them were my lawyers uh, who defended me in 2016 in a lawsuit that was brought against me by a prominent white nationalist out of Tennessee called James Edwards, uh, who hangs out with David Duke. Uh, the former Grand Wizard. So when you talk about have I felt the weight, oh, of course, um, you know, I'm a frontline journalist. And um, um, uh, James Edwards, who has a, um, a, 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 a racist show called The Political Cesspool, uh, has interviewed David Duke and, all of, and others. And uh, he had filed a lawsuit against me and the Detroit News in 2016 for me writing a column about, about the KKK and Donald Trump and him. And this was in 2016, 
and they filed this lawsuit, a uh, 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 libel uh, lawsuit, accusing me of libel and so forth. And you know, the Detroit News, uh, the our the lawyers who represented me defended the case vigorously, and it took about eighteen months, I think. And the lawsuit was filed on the day of my birthday. Uh, yes, <laughs> fun. Uh, yeah, which of course not only fun, but it tells you how creepy these guys are. Mm-hmm. You know, and and of course, you know, as a frontline journalist, as a frontline writer, and a thinker of the black experience, suddenly uh, it comes with the territory, right? So uh, I, I wasn't much surprised, but. Uh, to cut a long story short, uh, they filed a lawsuit against me on the day of my birthday. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C. for a function. I got a call from the Detroit News that these guys are going to court. But anyway, the, and when they filed this lawsuit, I saw this white nationalist on, on, online uh, raising money, you know, help us defeat Bankle A. Thompson in Detroit. You know, he's this and that. You know, they were, you know, th- th- these guys, they're very organized. So, but anyway, after 18 months, uh, we... Um, and this was because of a column I wrote about Donald Trump, uh, the KKK, and of course. Uh, and so after 18 months, the Michigan Court of Appeals, the second highest court in Michigan, uh, a three-judge panel uh, ruled unanimously uh, saying that my columns are protected political speech under the First Amendment. And of course, uh, the, my lawyers uh, uh, using the New York Times versus Sullivan, uh, you know, the notable... Um, uh, case on libel, uh, successfully defended me, and the Court of Appeals not only ruled in my favor, but they made it a published opinion. Uh, published opinion means that uh, that lawsuit, that case, uh, 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 would now be cited from now on whenever there is a case uh, involving libel and the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. And so it became a published opinion. I think less than 5% of cases are published opinion. Uh, means it's a precedent-setting case. So to answer your question, have I felt the weight of, of being, you know, in this? I think you do. Yes, I have. <laughs> and, I, and I think that not many, you know, I'm in a space where it, it's, and it's kind of amazing, though, because uh, somebody said to me, well, you know, not many journalists uh, get sued by uh, white nationalists and, 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 and folks who are linked to the KKK. That's what, my goodness. And... <laughs> Just but, but but that does not that that should not deter us. Uh, we have to keep fighting and championing racial justice. And here is the thing. And um, I feel like maybe yesterday or day before yesterday, somebody was talking about of noted inequities when it comes to the media. According to the Pew Research Center, yep, uh-huh, I, I forgot to write I forgot to write it down on my right. notes, but I still remember right. it. <laughs> 43% of people believe that the news media unfairly stereotypes black people. And when I think about it, I, I see some of the previous things of the my goodness, almost 10 years of the Black Lives Matter movement because it was around this time that Trayvon Martin was yep. was killed and it just kind of started this back up again. But I just see iniquities like the fact that if you are going to someplace, they'll do their best to sort of humanize the white victim like he he played tennis and he had a he had a very light up smile even though he killed 17 people Mm -hmm. and the of course 
when dealing with somebody who is black when it's killed, he was no angel. Mm-hmm. He was no he 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 did this and he made an F on his well, social studies yeah, test. So, you know so, what I mean? <laughs> yeah, but 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 uh, no, I, I think that's a valid point. Uh, uh, a Pew Research Center does a lot of studies you know, across many issues. And I think the report about the media stereotype and black folk, I mean, that's, you know, frankly, you know, I think anybody knows that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's good to see Pew Research Center highlights it, but I think the black folk will tell you, well, we don't even need Pew Research to tell us that. <laughs> we know that. Uh, just look at how when, 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 when people are accused of criminal behavior, uh, you know, sometimes there's a propensity uh, in the mainstream media, because I'm in the mainstream media, uh, prior to the Detroit News, um, I was the editor of the African-American uh, newspaper in Michigan uh, called the Michigan Chronicle for a decade. But my point here is, though, is uh, there's a propensity uh, for the mainstream media to uh, humanize uh, white assailants. And there's a propensity for the mainstream media to criminalize uh, black folk who are accused and make them feel guilty. And uh, of course, another yeah. another and, and, example and, I'm thinking of is Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> and yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And, and and you know in Wisconsin, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's a great example. But not only that. I mean, I remember when um, when the shooting in Aurora, uh, in Denver, happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 young white uh, uh, student, or I call him a madman who went to the movie theater in Aurora and started shooting people. Uh, there were, I mean, there were articles. I read a couple of opinion articles in the Denver Post saying how he was a great kid and, you know, was going to be a neuroscientist of some sort. So my point is there that we should condemn all evil. We should condemn violence, uh, no matter who the accused is. But uh, what's the point uh, when when white folk are accused of the same crime that black people are accused of, those white folk who are accused, they tell us about their history and how great they were and how uh, just what happened to them may have been a slip, but they're basically good people. But when it's black people, uh, they're not humanized and there's no such thing as due process. Uh, they're treated as if they're guilty in the press. Mm-hmm. And so that's the imbalance. And I think that's the racial inequity that we see in the mainstream media, uh, how the media views criminal behavior uh, by human beings uh, based on the color of their skin. Uh, If you have to feel uh, that you have to tell the totality of the story of a white person who has been accused of doing something horrible, but you have to tell their entire story and tell us where they went to school and how, what grades they got, but you don't do the same for their black counterparts, clearly that shows a bias irrespective of the violence that both of them or each of them may have committed. And so there is bias in the media, and I think we have to be able to call it out. Now, how we cure that, I think, has to do with, uh, main, how to, has to do with uh, inclusion, uh, diversity, meaningful inclusion and diversity in newsrooms across this nation. Uh, who does the media hire? Uh, what kinds of journalists are hired? And who is being assigned to cover black communities? Exactly. <laughs> keep running over the things that I actually was right. going to ask. Well, it's, like, it's, it's a flow. Right. It's a flow. Um, if you had, let's say, a magic wand and you could just tap it and say, and have things 
various things that are in the media space. What were some things that you would like to see in today's media space? Well, uh, one of the things that I like to see is uh, more emphasis and resources uh, devoted uh, to the area of economic justice. Um, Media newsrooms across this nation have you know, enterprise projects. And those projects may focus on uh, covering, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the sex scandals in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, those projects may uh, involve covering certain issues uh, within certain industry that they care about, you know, corporate, you know, um, 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 you know scandals in corporations and so forth. But I think I'd like to see an enterprise project devoted to, towards economic inequality and, and showing how black communities uh, uh, are, uh, are dealing with the inequality that we see across this nation. And by that I mean poverty, right? And, and the importance of that, but also showing the faces of that and what is being done to help uh, uh, black communities recover uh, from uh, the manacles of inequality. So if you were to advise, ask me what, my, uh, what I think the media should do, I think they should do that. Uh, there ought to be emphasis. There ought to be a focus on certain issues uh, that have a meaningful impact in advancing the black community. The reason why I think a lot of uh, black folk or some black folk uh, write of the media, they say, well, the mainstream media is biased anyway. They don't come to our communities unless... Uh, you know, uh, a, a young brother who's 17 years old shoots somebody or there's a mm-hmm. carjacking at a gas station, you know, and that's the time that they come to a neighborhood and cover that neighborhood and talk about the carjacking and the shooting, exactly. all of which are important, gun violence and all of that. But uh, beyond those, what about the economic issues? What about those economic challenges faced by those very communities that, uh, you know, become sometimes, uh, 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 you know, the breeding ground for gun violence? Okay, so <laughs> so that's so let, let's kind of move towards because we speaking of targets on our backs, um, let's move into a little bit of the 2024 election because yeah. that's good that's coming um i know here in louisiana we're dealing with a governor's race which um the center for racial justice of course is going to be covering on monday um we're having a debate here um among the candidates yes i do believe we have about five candidates i'm not okay. sure how um if anybody else has confirmed as of this as of this recording but we'll we'll definitely go ahead and Um, find out later so in recent times we've seen sort of i guess a backlash toward i i guess an answer toward the um black lives matter movement in the ways of co-opting yet another part of aave which is the anti-wokeness movement right um a lot of a lot of candidates um have a tendency to utilize woke as a pejorative uh just to mean anything that they don't like which may be black or queer or trans (laughs) um so how do you feel that that is going to directly affect the 
voting block on either side when it comes to this upcoming election? Well, so I think this is what the political right has done. Uh, they have succeeded in framing a narrative around uh, being social justice conscious, uh, being um, uh, racially conscious, and being and also being you know uh, you know diversity conscious. And I think anybody who speaks the language of social justice, economic justice, racial justice is considered you know a woke individual, if you will, whatever they call it. But I remember somewhere along the line, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his last book, uh, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? Mm -hmm. He talks about the need for us to stay awoke uh, during this period of great revolution. And so if you're saying that we are woke activists, then Dr. King was the greatest woke activist, especially when he advised that uh, we must stay awake uh, during this period of great revolution. So I think uh, uh, the nation is going through a lot of hardship. And uh, uh, those of us who believe uh, in uh, championing racial justice, economic justice, certainly should not uh, be deterred by the labels that are being pushed out there. I think that um, uh, you know those who are on the other side of of the political uh, ledger, and and you know conservatives have done a great job in terms of uh, the right has done a great job in terms of framing this, but I don't think uh, liberals and the Democratic coalition have done a great job of of reframing the narrative, and I think sometimes what we end up seeing is that uh, those who are on the other side of the political ledger or the ideological spectrum have this tendency to run away once the right succeeds in framing an issue uh, that is pro-black, an issue that is uh, at the center of black existence and black survival. Uh, because if, if we go by history, uh, this notion of being a woke activist is, is you know, is, there's nothing wrong in being staying awake during this period of great revolution, as Dr. King said. And, and so uh, I don't see any reason why that is a bad thing, uh, except for those who are not students of history and who don't understand how far this nation has come. So even as you know, we go into an important chapter, of course, next year's 2024 presidential election, I think uh, black folk ought to demand from politicians who say they want black support that you have to tell us where you stand on these issues of racial justice. You have to tell us where you stand on the issue of criminal justice reform. You know, you have to tell us where you stand on issues of poverty. You have to tell us where you stand on issue of on issues of critical race theory, and and not not uh, give in to the fear mongering uh, that is being created around critical race theory, around other issues, and 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 is done in a way to make uh, folk abdicate. Uh, the battlefield for racial justice. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something short. Uh, I remember, I think it was two years ago, uh, I, um, I gave a eulogy uh, at a funeral of a, a sharecropper from Dillon County in South Carolina. Uh, uh, and, and, and I talked about uh, this black woman. Uh, I was asked to, uh, to, to, to give the public eulogy at her funeral. And I, I talked about how, you know, the, the, the real founding 
uh, mothers have been the black women and you know who have toiled on those slave plantation fields and so forth and that uh, their lives define the meaning of critical race theory uh, the struggles of injustice uh, the, the the chains of brutality uh, the, 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 the 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 scourge of the whip uh, you know the, those uh, speak to the, the the enduring reality of critical race theory and it is out of all those struggles out of all those pains uh, that this you know the arguing for some sort of a legal mechanism that deals with racism comes out of mm-hmm. so you know the, the the idea that when black folk want to advocate for racial justice uh, advocate for diversity and inclusion in universities and colleges especially after the Supreme Court ruled uh, adversely against affirmative action, uh, which I thought was an ill-conceived decision, uh, the worst of its kind, I don't see why people should run away from those who are calling people who are championing, others who are championing racial justice, work activists. I don't see it. And the fun, the, so here's my question. Do you think any of the candidates would, especially candidates who are for or believe they're for racial justice and and championing, showing out, showing racial inequity, um, do you feel that it would be who them to not shy away from these issues? I mean, because again, as of right now, Amongst many certain spaces, there are situations where you're like, woke is the boogeyman. Woke is the scary monster in the closet. Yeah. Yeah. CR, CRT is half the time people don't know what critical race, half the time they don't know what woke and critical race theory is. However, it's scary. It sounds scary. <laughs> And do you think it would behoove well, people to like lean into that saying, okay, this is what it is. Yeah. This is what woke is. This is not something to be fearful of. This is something that we need to essentially embrace because it's not scary unless you are racist. <laughs> well, you know, and, 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 and I've, you know, yes, there's scapegoating it and, and they're blaming you know, the entire body of advocacy, entire body of engagement for racial justice are simply uh, something that is an anatma to the ideals of democracy when it's actually is the opposite. It's mutually exclusive, uh, should be mutually exclusive. So uh, I think those who are running for office, uh, you know, we ought to demand not only in the media space but in the public space, in the public gallery, uh, we ought to demand uh, that they tell us where they stand on these issues of uh, uh, racial justice, uh, uh, economic equality. You know, as I, you know, prepare to go back to uh, uh, Michigan next week, uh, I'm going to be speaking uh, uh, to a bar association, an association of lawyers, and they've asked me to come and speak. Uh, be the uh, 2023, 2023 speaker for the annual dinner, and it's an affirmative action. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, my point here is we ought to demand of these candidates, of these people who are, 
who 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 are interested in black support to 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 tell us where they stand on these issues and you know dr king said the measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort but where he stands in moments of controversy and so if if folk are not willing uh if politicians uh be they black white brown green if they're not willing to embrace the pain of black humanity publicly why should they get the support from the black community and I, I definitely agree with that. If you um, can't publicly embrace black humanity and the pain of black humanity, why must black people trust that when you get into office, you'll really do something when you cannot publicly acknowledge, publicly accept uh, the, the, the fact that black humanity is part of the enduring experience gotcha. of our democratic experiment? Okay, and that actually moves to what we're currently dealing in in the political space. Right. Um, as of the our recording, we're still essentially dealing with, um, we're still essentially dealing with, um, this sort of turmoil that's going on in Congress right now. No speaker. <laughs> uh, and Kevin of course, McCarty mess. Yeah, that's it. That, and that's and a hot mess. It's and it's just kind of this weird sort of infighting situation and it's very wild to see it play out do you think i'd that, like to that, see hakeem jeffress brother hakeem from new york be the speaker i would i would i would look i would look <laughs> forward to that too but we i'm going to leave that alone that's my personal opinion i'm going to leave right, it be right but, but no you know, I, I understand the institution is, a, is apolitical but this is my opinion though i think if if hakeem becomes speaker they'll say oh there goes the work activist has won but 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 listen, what is happening in Congress, I think, is 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 shameful, is awful, and it, it really undermines uh, one of the significant institutions of our democratic system. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congress is the heartbeat of our democracy because it's the people's house, you know. And I think that uh, to have no speaker at this point in time uh, certainly is unfortunate, and uh, it just prolongs the problem. Uh, the, 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 it prolongs the effort to solve all of the intractable issues that we're dealing with. Do you feel that that is going to eventually have real world repercussions on us who are just living our lives and uh, on the notion of racial injustice? Well, it is because you got to get be able to pass certain things in the House to make it to the, you know, to, to the Senate and then they'll vote or the Senate votes on an issue. It has to come back to the House. There has to be a corresponding vote and all of that. So it's going to impact. I think uh, we are almost um, at a, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's at a crossroads. Uh, so nothing has been done. Everything is at a standstill right now. So everything hinges on what comes out of the house. Of course. Let's talk about fiery conscience. <laughs> um, so this is your fifth book, not yeah. not first, second, third, or fourth. Yeah. You're not in the state of flux like I am. Right. Um, this is your uh, this is your very uh, your fifth book. So I want to ask. What led you into saying, okay, was it a thing of, I want to write a fifth book? Right. Do you, did you feel like, okay, this was the next thing to come up? What, 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 was, your, what was your mindset in creating, in creating that um, in, in this book? book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Fiery Conscience, I, um, uh, several people approached me right after George Floyd uh, about coming out with a book 
that speaks to uh, what happened with George Floyd. And, you know, because I've, you know, I've been in this racial justice track in the media for so long mm -hmm. and, and to give my perspective. And I remember when um, the George Floyd verdict came down, I wrote the front page column for the Detroit News uh, when that uh, verdict came down, which, you know, was the whole world was waiting for the verdict in Minneapolis. But people approached me, asked me to write a book around George Floyd and racial justice and so forth. And I wanted to do a book, but I wanted to do a book differently. So because I've written uh, four books before, including two on uh, President Barack Obama, mm -hmm. because I've interviewed him many times, sat down with him several times. And I wanted to do a book, but that one that will be different, uh, still can, will speak to the essence of the movement that's, that basically, you know, um, uh, the, the movement that speaks to what happened to George Floyd and George Floyd speaking to that movement and all of that, but to write it differently. And that was to basically encapsulate uh, uh, the decades of my, uh, um, uh, my journalism in, 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 uh, and, of course, uh, being a practicing journalist and to talk about, reflect on some of the, the seminal moments in my media career. And, and basically, that became the essence of the book. So when you look at the book, it's 12 chapters. And uh, each 12 chapter is, is 12 analytical essays uh, written by 12 different individuals who have observed my work over the years. And I think I shared it in my lecture earlier at the Carney Hall today. Uh -huh. And uh, people who have observed my work over the years and talking about it in their own voice and how I have lent uh, my voice and my pen to advance in racial justice. And of course, I shared the story of uh, the two young African-American boys, uh, you know, who were falsely accused of killing a white woman. And um, I intervened in that case uh, uh, years ago in 2006 and was successfully able to get them released and all the charges were dropped. Uh, so when you read Fiery Conscience, it's, uh, it's a collection of uh, stories that speak to black humanity, uh, but to our collective humanity. And those stories, the anchor point here is uh, my involvement in those stories and how I've lent my voice to those issues that are raised in those stories. Exactly. And uh, they're being shared by individuals who were impacted by that story or who have observed how those stories have evolved. Okay. Now so so it's not me philosophizing my my views of the world, mm -hmm. my my take on democracy and so forth and so forth. Now, how do you feel like this how do you feel this book is different than your other five works? Yeah. Um, because my other five my other uh, uh this is the fifth one. My other four books have been me speaking. It's me writing, uh you mm -hmm. know, me talking about my take. Like when I wrote the book in 2010 on uh, President Barack Obama, it was titled Obama and Black Loyalty. And mm -hmm. I was exploring this notion about President Barack Obama's loyalty to black folk when he became president and what does that mean across issues like prison reform, criminal justice reform, economic inequality and so forth. And then in 2011 when I wrote the book Obama and Christian Loyalty, it was about Barack Obama, uh, his faith posture, uh, black theology mm -hmm. and the religious right because there was a time when uh, Reverend Franklin Graham, I remember came out on Easter Sunday to raise questions about President Barack Obama's uh, Christian faith, faith beliefs, mm -hmm. and and basically intimated that you know he doesn't know 
if if President Obama is a Christian practicing or Bible practicing Christian, whatever it is, and and so uh, uh, the book Obama and Christian Loyalty talks about. Uh, the politics of the religious right, uh, black theology. Of course, I cited uh, the late James Cone from Union Theological Seminary in that book, and 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 talk about just the essence of that and Obama's faith pastures. So, uh, in my previous books, it's been me talking, you know, and 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 me giving my take. In fact, in two thousand and six, two thousand five, two thousand six, when my first book came out, it was titled "Ignoring the Underprivileged." Ah. And it was an it was titled "Ignoring the Underprivileged: An Indictment of Mainstream Media." Ah. So it was me being in the media. Of course, I was, I was in the black press at the time, uh, talking about how the mainstream media ignores black issues, issues of racial justice, and so forth. And I remember the book was then used um, for uh, for required reading at Eastern Michigan University uh, by then Professor Charles Simmons. But I say that to say that, so this was my take on, on, on the mainstream media in 2006. In fact, I cited Hurricane Katrina because Katrina had just happened in 2005. Yes. I talked about Katrina in the book and how the media was covering black folk who were trying to escape, uh, uh, Katrina Mm -hmm. and, 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 and we, we saw them, you know, swimming in the waters and they call them looters. And then when it was white folk in the waters looking to, you know, escape, they call them something else. The point is, though, that when it comes to the media, they look at black people and we are interpreted. Our actions are interpreted differently than our white counterparts. And so uh, ignoring the privileged back then in 2006 talked about how the media can be biased towards black communities. So but this book is my first book where other folk are looking at my work through their own lens and through their own voice. And, 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 and the issues that I've uh, championed. And even even in that, as somebody who survived Hurricane Katrina, right. um, I, I, I was, I, I would say, fortunate not to be here when the storm hit. Yeah. But going just, I, I, I was always afraid for years. I was afraid of the Katrina sigh. <laughs> and the reason, yeah. I, I re, the reason why it was that, it's that, Mainstream media is so powerful that I've been so many places, thankfully. Um, and anytime for a very long, for maybe like from 2005 to maybe like 2007, I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles. And anytime that I told somebody I'm from New Orleans. I got, and this is this is myself calling it the Katrina sigh, mm-hmm. because anytime anytime some somebody heard I was from New Orleans, they let out a, oh really? How is it down there? <laughs> I got it a uh, two or three years ago. <laughs> it's like, ma'am, mm-hmm. Hurricane Katrina happened over like fifty years ago. What's going on with you? That's right. <laughs> It, but it's this sort of mindset that they're like, I, I literally had somebody who I had to, unfortunately, a former boss who I had to call out because she was essentially telling me that I, I me, me being hired by her was her helping the recovery. 
Oh wow! Yeah, so <laughs> I was like, oh, "Hold up, let's let's go ahead and pull it back." And you you're speaking um, uh, in Kearney about white liberals don't like being called racist, and she's yeah. very white liberal. <laughs> and I wanted to say, "Ma'am, ma'am, I, I understand how you feel, and I understand it's not coming from a malicious place, but what you're doing is inappropriate. <laughs> Can you please not do that anymore?" <laughs> and she was like. I didn't even see it like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, here is a question for you. Now, it seems as though, and I'm not trying, I'm not trying to call you out, I'm not trying to call any ages here. Um, you have been in the media space for quite a bit of time, at the very least, maybe like I would say 20 years. Um, you have had an ability to see how media has essentially changed from where it was in the mid 2000s to now in 2023 where if you have a phone any clip that you have you can possibly be a reporter so and like i said there are several smaller and i would say less reputable out out um outlets may they be blogs or on social so, media yeah. um if you can give them a little bit of advice to keep sort of a, a level of integrity what would it be well so so this is very interesting you said that because this talks about, this speaks to your question speaks to the the change in landscape in the media mm-hmm. uh, i call it the rise of citizen journalist and that is something that I addressed in that book uh, back in 2006. Uh, bloggers and uh, those who have taken them to the internet, uh, the, the, the internet has become a democracy's perhaps biggest tool, if you will. It has democratized the, just the way the media you know, operates. And we, we've seen what I call the shift in political sands or the shift in media sands here in terms of just how uh, citizen journalists, people who are bloggers and uh, who take to the internet, who create their own online newsletters, have tried to put the media in check. So when stories, are, uh, you know, when there's breaking story by the local networks here in New Orleans or the national networks and so forth, uh, what we see is they are rushing to break the story because somebody on Facebook gonna put that story out there. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody driving, you know, from uh, uh, Gentilly Boulevard or right away from campus here that we're on Dillard campus. Mm-hmm. Somebody driving around this campus, you know, sees a police officer, pulls over a black driver across from Dillard and, and engages in behavior that is constitutionally questionable, may have that video on tape. And by the time the local news runs over there, they put it on Facebook, it garners thousands of views. Exactly. Or Instagram or, or, or X, formerly Twitter, or even LinkedIn and so forth. So I, I think that... Uh, it's just me, but I will never yeah. call it X. I yeah, yeah, I know. It's <laughs> Listen, listen. Elon, Elon, Elon Musk is a whole different conversation. We're not going to do that on this inaugural uh, podcast yeah, conversation. Yeah. We're trying we not to be too controversial. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't mind being controversial, but I, I, I am feeling Elon Musk right now. But the thing about what I'm trying to say, though, is that um, there's an opportunity for those who are engaged in what I call citizen journalism. Uh, what, what I'd like to see, what you put out there, put out the raw truth. Uh, uh, put it put, put out what you see. Uh, there is no need to um, to sugarcoat it. There is no need to embellish it. 
and you can tell your own story. You know, I always encourage people to tell their own story. And, and I think since I've been in New Orleans this week, I've been having several uh, meetings, talking to uh, uh, different people. I had a, a meeting, a brief meeting earlier today with David Dennis. Dave Dennis, one of our civil rights leaders here in New Orleans. Yeah. And, but I always encourage people to tell their story. And you don't have to wait for a local or national network to tell your story. You can tell your own story. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that social media has created. Now, I understand that may be a drawback for the organized media and so forth, but people have to tell their own story. And we're in an age and in a dispensation where you don't have to wait for the network to show up knocking on your door or you don't have to send in a letter of request for some news editor to decide whether they want to cover Lawrence or not. You, Lawrence can tell his own story with a podcast, uh, by going on social media and so forth. So I'll say what you tell, whatever you do, give us the real deal. Uh, tell us the, 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 the real story and uh, that speaks to the human experience. And there's so many out there. There is this this one young man um, on the newest, I guess the newest social media world, TikTok. His name is JJ. Um, and he has a tendency to sort of break down or debunk various like bad faith arguments and stereotypes and He's a sophomore in college and he's been doing it since he was 17. And I'm like, where, where was all of this when I was 17? Well, I mean, but all of this, you know, all of this is the, is, is the advantage is the opportunity that we are presented with in a technological age. All of this is the opportunity that we're presented with in a, a rapidly, radically uh, a different environment. And suddenly, you know, we're going to have to deal with the implications of AI, artificial intelligence later. That's a whole different conversation. But for now, what we see is, I think, from TikTok to Instagram to uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, and all these other avenues, uh, social media platforms, uh, it speaks to the, the opportunities that are presented in this technological age, and we have to, you know, ask ourselves how we do we how do we use this these platforms to advance the public good? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we use these platforms to uh, to speak to the essence of our collective humanity and to the essence of Black humanity? And how do we create opportunities out of uh, these platforms? To, to ensure that the public good is is protected. And and I think that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. And young people in this age uh, are very fortunate. I think all of us are fortunate. And, and I shared this, you know, this, um, I, I said something similar, uh, shared the story uh, last year when I, um, uh, I gave the keynote uh, 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 lecture for Brown University Black History Month. And um, uh, I was being asked during the Q&A session for Brown University. 
I was being asked about, you know, today's generation versus the civil rights leadership, uh, civil rights era. But one of the things that I said was, uh, you know, during the civil rights movement, uh, Dr. King, Dr. Bernard Lafayette, uh, the late Congressman John Lewis, Ambassador Andrew Young, and, and others, uh, they did not have Diane Nash and others. They did not have self. They didn't have, you know, smartphones, right? We, we Some of us are walking around with two phones. Uh, there was no Instagram. There was no Facebook. Uh, there were no Twitter, LinkedIn, and so forth. But they use their creative intelligence. Uh, they use their own intellect uh, to be innovative uh, and, and, and to find ways to uh, uh, advance the cause of racial equity uh, and racial justice. And in doing so, they did it effectively. So in this age and in this space where, you know, we can talk to somebody, you know, in a whole different continent just by texting, you know, and, and there's so many opportunities that are at our fingertips uh, that I think we can use those opportunities collectively to advance the public good. Absolutely. If there was something that you would like to leave our audience with, um, who hopefully are a whole bunch of students, students, if you're listening, that, that listen, listen more. <laughs> like, I know it's the first episode, but there's more stuff. There's more stuff to come. Listen more. We got some fun stuff for you. But if you could leave our our students, our Dillard students with one thing, especially those who are in the social justice space, those who are in the mass communication space, who may want to move into this area, because Mass communications is mass communications. You can go quite literally anywhere. What would you want to leave them with um, as, as that kind of yeah. last, last thing? Well, so, so let, me, let, me, let me premise it this way. Uh, uh, Dillard University is a great institution. Uh, it is a citadel of uh, black education, uh, black empowerment. Uh, it's an important institution that uh, remains as a vanguard to advance black humanity. Uh, the students that walk to the campus of Dillard, uh, I expect, are going to be leaders uh, in their own different ways and in their own spaces. And if mass communication is one of the disciplines that you choose to be in uh, when you step into Dillard and ready to step out of Dillard, uh, understand that uh, communication is important mm -hmm. and that uh, uh, the great leaders in history that we remember were great communicators uh, sometimes or in most of the time you can be uh, a successful and an effective leader if you're not an effective communicator uh, uh, Dr. King is championed as uh, one of the greatest civil rights leaders of the 20th century because Dr. King was a masterful communicator he understood how to use communication skills. Uh, the late John Lewis was a communicator. Uh, the late Harry Balafante was a communicator. Uh, Diane Nash, uh, Dr. Benalla, these individuals know how to communicate. Uh, communication is a necessity. It's something that is important. Uh, and and it, it is a space uh, that is needed today. Uh, we need more black folk as communicators who can go into that discipline. Uh, one of the reasons why we remember uh, Frederick Douglass so well, the 19th century black abolitionist, because Frederick Douglass was a genius, was a master communicator. Uh, you know, he used photography to communicate. Uh, he was once considered the most photographed 
individual, if not of the 19th century, because he understood the essence of communicating. Uh, when we think about the, um, uh, the late Bishop Richard Allen uh, of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, another founder of, 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 of past the AME Church was the first black institution uh, ever founded in this nation. Uh, Richard Allen uh, would create newsletters uh, to, to, to communicate to his community and to speak to his people. What am I trying to say in invoking uh, these histrionic and historical authorities? I'm simply saying to the students of Dillard that communication is a very powerful tool. Uh, that if you choose the route of using communication as that discipline to advance whatever you want to do, uh, understand that, uh, that in fact, uh, uh, that a generation before you, uh, generations before you have used communication and the communicating tool as an avenue to protect, to safeguard, and to advance the interests of black humanity. And in so doing, they were able to advance the interests of our collective humanity. Thank you, Lee Thompson. I think this was an amazing first episode. <laughs> I hope that, I, I mean, I, I'm, again, nobody's journalist, but I hope at least I was able to catch your attention for an extended period of time. <laughs> Now well, I, I do I do have to ask: Should I go get one of those pairs of like giant Oprah glasses? Am I am I am I am I, am I, am I at that level yet? <laughs> I, I don't think. I, I, th I no no. I I, I, I I think you did a great job with this interview, uh, Brother Lawrence. Uh, you know I think uh, your you know your questions were 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 were. Um, were, were very inquisitive driven and I think uh, they were penetrating speaking to some of the issues that you know we're all concerned about so um, thank you again and of course to the Center for Racial Justice uh, for the honor of being your inaugural uh, interview guest here on this podcast. A pleasure it is definitely been I mean not only for this but uh, the other it, even just driving up and grabbing the books it was, right, it was right. it's been a general <laughs> pleasure. Okay, it seems that that was wonderful. So, you know, thank you for listening to our episode of the uh, of the Center for Racial Justice. Wait a second. Um, Live from the Center for Racial Justice. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but you, you, the, the reason why um, T is looking at me like that is because I completely forgot. And totally forgot that uh, she also had some questions too. So yeah, I wanted to get my questions in. <laughs> so I'm just I'm looking down at her feet just to make sure she doesn't yank off one of the shoes and throws it at me. It's like I am having <laughs> I'm have like chunkla <laughs> I'm have chunkla um, flashbacks from when I was a kid. So. I absolutely want you to listen to the questions that um, that Tia have for Bankalay because they were really interesting. So let's go ahead and look at that right now. Okay, so from your book, Theory Conscience, right? Um, what is it that what advice would you give to a young activist trying to take action and find solutions and all the injustices we have going on? Yeah. You know, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I was asked a similar question about that last year when I was uh, speaking for Brown University Black History Month about young activists and what we can do. And uh, the, the advice here is be original be who you are. 
because uh, I don't think that we're trying to we're asking people to be the next Martin Luther King Jr. Right. You know, we're not asking you to be the next Shirley Chisholm. Uh, what we're asking is that you be who you are and use your gifts and your talents and use them in the best way possible to be an effective social change agent. But in doing so as well, I think it is important that we read history. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, we have to be conscious conscious of the fact uh, that people are going to test you as an activist. They want to know how much you know. They want to know the extent of your intellect. They want to know the extent of your commitment. They want to know how courageous you are. And they want to know if, in fact, you can, you're going to, you, if they place you in a room, are you just going to let steam and just break down? And by that, I mean that sometimes activism is important. It's at the very core of our struggle to, you know, defend black humanity, you know, and it's always going to be important. But I think we should also be mindful of the fact uh, that uh, there are folk who are going to challenge activists uh, to see what they are made of. And so my advice would be that uh, we read history, uh, understand uh, those who came before this era and uh, the strategies that they employed. Now, over time, you know, between the 50s and the 2020s, it's a long time, almost half a century. You know, the strategies that were used back then may not be effective today. It's a different era. It's a different time. There's the era of Instagram, Facebook, X, you name it, and all of that. But it's always important for us to read history so we know what strategies were employed by those who paved the way for all of us to be here. And I think that that is very important. And I'm going to share this quickly since you asked me this question. Uh, Dr. Bernard Lafayette, uh, who was one of Dr. King's top lieutenants and uh, a good friend and mentor of mine, uh, always shares the story about, you know, back in the 50s and the 60s. And, you know, when they would be asked to go into a meeting, he said sometimes they would come up with hypothetical questions and they'll create a scenario and say, well, you know, we got a call from the governor of Louisiana and, He's been asking for a meeting or the mayor of New Orleans and she wants to meet with us. Who wants to go? And they said, and he's, uh, Dr. Lafayette said, uh, what they've always done is to study and see who are the people who are just going to raise their hands up. And normally they're the last people they will, they will invite to ask to go. They will, they will choose those who say, wait, let's think about this invitation. Why does the governor want to speak to us today? Why does the mayor want to talk to us all of a sudden after we've tried to reach to the mayor, reach out to the mayor? So those who apply analytical thinking and those who are very strategic in their thinking are the ones who are normally in the room. So activists have to be strategic. They have to be analytical and they have to understand uh, that there are moments that call for us to be able to speak to those issues directly. And there are moments when you want to go in and listen and see what people have to say before you come back with a response. Okay. Definitely. And I'm just visiting, like I told you earlier, I went to visit the uh, Ben Franklin Middle School. 
And hearing when I ask the kids about social justice and what it means to them and when I ask them what activists are they aware of, of course, they all know Martin Luther King. They all know. But I did find it hard for them to name current activists and, you know, finding out people who they can relate to now that are fighting for our rights um, for equality. Right. Um, But I did think it was so interesting hearing sixth, seventh and eighth graders who know about the environmental crisis we're having right now with the um, saltwater intrusion and hearing about the wildfires and um, they, of course, they all named racism, gun violence. So our youth are very much aware. Right. They're just really missing that confidence and knowing that their voices will be heard and having a game plan of for solutions. Well, yeah. And I think uh, one of the things that has to be done is to be able to build their confidence and to tell them that you know they're in fact the the the, the next generation that will that we're counting on to 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 take the mantle of leadership uh, they're the ones who are going to be the solution changers. They're the ones who are going to be the change makers and the future is in their hands. And I think part of the problem though is, you know, we always have this debate between the generation during the civil rights movement and our generation, right? The, the disconnect, you know, is has the mantle of leadership been passed over to us or do we have to grab the mantle and run with it? Mm-hmm. You know, and then of course there is also the debate about well, uh, well, we're not sure Bankley about whether you know Tia is ready to take over. We're not sure if Lawrence is ready. We're not sure even if Bankley is ready. You know, and there is that back and forth. But you know, I I think that uh, n- no one is ever ready to be in a leadership position. As sometimes you know, uh, Shakespeare said, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Mm-hmm. And so you may not be born great. Uh, you may achieve greatness, leadership qualities, or you may have leadership qualities trust upon you. So wherever you fall in that column, I think we have to project young people as leaders. And I think sometimes we've done a very bad job of not putting young people in certain positions of influence and power, especially young people that we know are committed, have a commitment, they have courage, they're brilliant, they're intelligent, they're strategic, and they're talented. And we have to be able to do that. I think uh, we can't just go into a room and be talking to all, talking down on young people. We should be able to go into a room and talk with young people and listen to what they have to say. And I think that's the reason why sometimes you find young people who feel a disconnect uh, between them and sometimes the leaders that we have because the attitude, the way you even approach young people, you know, and I don't think that, you know, when, you know, I've seen folk, I've been in rooms where folk come up to you and the first thing they want to size up is how old you are. (laughs) How old you are has nothing to do with you being in the room. The fact that you are in the room says that you have something to contribute to the discussion in the room. So when you walk up to me and say, well, how old are you? It doesn't matter how old I am. The fact that I'm in, I'm in the room, let's have a conversation about what is happening in the black community. But when I walk into the room and I walk up to you right away and say, hey, Tia, how old? You know, what am I trying to say? So that basically means that I have looked away from your talent. I have ignored whatever your contributions are that got you in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm only focused on your age. So I think sometimes that has a, a dangerous and a corrosive impact on, on, on young people. And it allows them to feel turned off and not even want to be engaged. Right. I definitely agree. We have to include the young voices and the problems that's going on because they, they know. They, like I learned today, they're very much aware. They're very much 
um, interested in what's going on, but it's the idea of what can I do? I'm in seventh right. grade. Right. So eighth grade. So it's like, yeah. they're yeah. definitely capable of participating in any movement. And I told them that when I met them today, like our voices matter, your voices matter. Our youth are our future leaders for sure. Yeah. 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 And, and that has to be part of, that has to be a continuum. That has to be a continual conversation. The problem we have and I see this all the time, I see this all the time, is that we have conversation about youth leadership once every five million years, mm-hmm. once every 20 years. You know, we have the big conversation and there are no young people. You know, I've been in meetings where people go into a room and then they say they're having a big meeting about solving all the problems of the world and you walk in, there's no young person in the room. Right. Yeah. You know, you walk in the room, there's nobody there who's on Instagram. <laughs> yes. Now how are you going to get the message out? I've been to a few meetings like that. You walk in there, there's nobody who's on LinkedIn. Or if they've been on LinkedIn, the last time they checked their LinkedIn was 5,000 years ago. Yeah. You know, I'm just on my LinkedIn. I just posted a picture giving you guys a shout out on LinkedIn. So the point is that <laughs> how are you going to conduct business talking about the future of black America, the future of urban America, the future of Detroit, the future of New Orleans, the future of, of, of Jackson, Mississippi, the future of Chicago, the future of Atlanta, the future of Washington, D.C. And there ain't no young, there ain't no young person in that room that you're talking about the future. So that's part of the problem. So, and that creates a, a major disconnect. And so when other folk are saying, well, Bankley, we're not sure if they're ready to take over. Well, you, of course you're not sure if they're ready to take over because you've been having conversations without them anyway. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you've not shown them the ropes. And we have to prepare them. Right, right. And, and, and that and attention. That's right. And I think that's part of the problem. But, you know, uh, I remain, I'm an eternal optimist. I'm very hopeful. You know, I, um, I, 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 I tend to develop a very optimistic view of the world. Even, you know, in the darkest hours of our democracy, of course, the things that are unraveling now, I still hold to an optimistic view that there's still hope, mm-hmm. you know, and with that hope, I think we can, you know, in the words of Dr. King, we can carve, carve out hope, you know, uh, um, out of a mountain. Yeah. Of stone, and and we can do a lot, and and uh, this this an era with so much opportunity, uh, the rise of social media, the internet, and all of that. I think it affords a lot of young people, a lot of all of us, the opportunity to really advance uh, the the cause of justice and to advance the work that we are doing uh, collectively and individually in our own spaces. Okay, and then for my next question, yes. Two decades of the impactful <laughs> journalism of Binkley Thompson. Now, this is a quite an, uh, this is an inquisition, but go ahead. I'm listening. So with two decades of right. journalism, right? what has changed in our community and what yeah. your writings about? What's, yeah. what, have, what do you see from 20 right. years ago? What yeah. is the major change that you've seen right. happen in our community? Positive you know, and yeah. Negative so, so before uh, it's funny you ask that question because, and, and I'm reflecting on it, right? So, uh, before um, I gave the talk earlier uh, about the book um, with the, with with the students, mm-hmm. and um, I was sitting at a lunch table with one of the students, and a couple of students actually. So, one of them who was sitting next to me, I think his last name is um, Gibson. So, but anyway, 
he and I were talking and and talking about my book. So uh, back in 2005, 2006, I wrote my first book and he said that was the year I was born. And I said, don't say that. That makes me feel like I've been around forever since civilization began. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, 2005, 2006 to 2023 is a long time. A lot has changed. A lot yeah. has changed. I so was, to, yeah. I was six. So Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, I was six years old. So I, I can't say I was... Fully informed. Wow, don't, don't say that again. You make me feel <laughs> as if I've been around forever. I'm, not, I'm just as young as you. <laughs> if it makes anybody feel any sort of thing, I was, what, 21. Are you serious? Oh, God. <laughs> so, guys, okay, okay, okay. But anyway, uh, youth is in attitude, not age. <laughs> yes. No, but so what has changed 20 years ago? I think a lot has changed uh, in terms of just how the media has evolved. Uh, I think social media, the internet, and people's ability to not wait on a local network to come and tell their story, to not wait on the mainstream media to to, to decide whether they want to come and cover the activities of the Center for Racial Justice here at Dillard. Uh, just by tweeting, by posting something on social media, you can get your message out. I think um, uh, with that, a lot has changed in it. We, we've seen the rise of citizen journalists, uh, bloggers and folk who are not waiting for other folk to, to tell their story. And so a, a lot has changed. But of course, the struggles of black people have also uh, evolved, right? Mm-hmm. And um, has some things changed? Well, I think, you know, a lot of issues have become more pronounced, right? We, we, we are in the age of um, uh, demanding justice because of what we have seen with Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, and Tamir Rice in Cleveland, right across from Detroit, uh, you know, Eric Garner and uh, Sandra Bland, uh, you know, Philando Castile, uh, you, you name it. So uh, those uh, were not as pronounced 20 years ago. 20 years later, we're dealing with those things. And uh, in the media space that I'm in, you know, I've tried in, in, in my own own way, creative ways to use my platform to advance, you know, issues of equity, racial justice, and so forth. And so when I say two decades, I'm basically reflecting on some of those important stories uh, that I was able to to, to take on and, and that were liberating in the black community. And so uh, the book, as I explained in this uh, podcast is, you know, a collection of stories written by people who have been impacted by the work that I've done. So I've written four books earlier than this. This is the fifth book. And and uh, each of the books that I've written in the past have been about me talking about, you know, my view of democracy and me basically, you know, talking about how I have a beef with racism and, you know, you know, the issues that I think it needs to be done and all of that, how to make the world great and all of that stuff. But this time, this is uh, basically people who uh, have looked at my work, have examined my journalism and basically talking about it in their own unique ways. For example, for example, uh, you know, there's a sister in the book uh, named Gwen Swanigan uh, who uh, I intervened uh, in 2006 to save her son from going to prison uh, when her son was falsely accused by by um, uh, uh, police officers in the city of Taylor, Michigan, and another black boy, uh, two black boys who were falsely accused of killing a white woman. And so I got in the case and championed that case, and within two months, all the charges were dropped. Wow. 
So those are the kinds of stories. So And so Gwen is speaking in the book about just the impact that I've had on the criminal justice system that had it not been for my intervention and my willingness to take on that case as a journalist and write about it and champion it, which led to protests and all kinds of stuff in Michigan, uh, that those boys would have been in prison today for a crime that they did not commit. And that is strictly off activism yes. and championing for yeah. different causes. And that's right. what I was trying to get the youth to understand. Anyone can be an activist. That is right. That is true. That is true. That yeah. is true. If you're an engineer, you can be an engineer for justice. If you're a doctor, you can be a doctor for justice. If you're a lawyer, you can be a lawyer for justice. If you're a, a technician, you can be a technician for justice. Anybody can advocate for something. Right. And the biggest one that I've been promoting all around since we went to the Black Caucus um, in D.C. Yeah, the Congressional Black Caucus. Yeah, we got to meet um, Quavo, the rapper whose nephew was shot um, Mm -hmm. at a nightclub, I believe. And ever since his nephew was shot, he started doing um, the Rocket Foundation, which is to promote, well, to help bring awareness to gun violence and regulating more gun laws. And Mm -hmm. he went to the white house to meet Kamala and Mm -hmm. they, they've passed the bill, I believe now around gun violence Um, or they have a team around. Yeah. The white house just established the first office of gun violence that is headed by the vice president Kamala Harris. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think having Quavo, um, Everybody knows the Migos. Everybody knows Quavo. I went, right. I, as soon as I said his name to the kids, they all started screaming, hollering. But they didn't know about the foundation. They didn't know about him doing this um, extra step towards something more positive outside of the music. Right. Um, but I do love the fact that our entertainers are getting involved. Yeah. Basketball players. We went to yeah. Urban League and CJ McCollum came. Right, right. And to see that, you know, is that's what's needed. You know, yeah, you know, and that's that's a big debate about entertainers uh, becoming agents of social change, and I think that the um, the the template had been set long time ago for us as black folk uh, in terms of the work that the late Harry Belafonte did. Mm-hmm. He was an entertainer, humanitarian, and was one of Dr. Martin Luther King's Jr.'s closest confidant. And he's on here somewhere. Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> so that's one more on here. We, you know, so but anyway, this is a great podcast by the way for anybody listening Dillard University Center for Racial Justice podcast is dope it's really dope Thank you. but Thank entertain, you. entertain we need entertainers to be involved with social justice you know and um I'm looking on the wall here. You got Tupac over there. I think he sang about the rose that grew out of the concrete. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which means that there's possibility and that we cannot condemn black people, uh, that everybody has potential in them. Everybody is born with potential. Nobody is born without potential. We have to find a way to harness the potential. So in the words of Tupac, of course, the rose that grew out of the concrete. And, and, and entertainers can be involved in addressing some of those questions. And of course, around criminal justice reform, yeah. you know, what is happening to black men and women, you know, I mean, biggest small talks about, you know, stereotypes of a black male misunderstood. And if you don't know now, you know, mm-hmm. that's the reality yeah. in terms of what has happened to black men and, and, and the issues, those boys that I saved, those were black men in 2006 who were falsely accused by the Taylor police department. Had it not been for my, my, my intervention, they probably would have been in jail today. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a real, that's real. And that goes back to biggest, small stereotypes of a black male misunderstood because uh, white men, white males are not misunderstood. No. They see their humanity. Yeah. So entertainers can play a role. Yes, definitely. I don't know if you've heard, uh, Taylor Swift is dating um, one of the <laughs> football players. 
And then she posted at her or said at her concert, everyone go vote. They got thousands of new yeah. voters registered now from yeah. her saying that one statement. Yeah. Well, I, I remember when uh, 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 former President Barack Obama was campaigning in Ohio and he was running in 2012 against Mitt Romney. And I remember Jay-Z did the opening for uh, President Obama in Ohio. And Jay-Z said, I got nine, nine problems, but meet ain't one. But anyway, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> we, we're going to keep this. We're going to keep this podcast policy oriented, Lawrence. We're going to keep it policy oriented and all of that, you know. So, but anyway. But it just shows how important or impactful music can be. Yes. To remember yes. that, to know yeah. that and to have them put their platform on the line to bring awareness. Cause that's all activism and social right. justice is about bringing, putting, making the community aware. That's right. Well, I mean, it's true. I mean, when we think about just that, I mean, there's a lot of history with that. I mean, Stevie Wonder, mm -hmm. the great Stevie Wonder, Motown legend. I mean, Stevie Wonder, uh, sang about, uh, you've not done, you've not done anything. Yeah. You haven't done nothing. I mean, and Stevie Wonder was a great anti-apartheid leader, uh, you know, basically campaign for the release of Nelson Mandela. So we, I think in our heritage, in our black heritage, we have documented history. We have documented history of, of black entertainers around the world who have stood for justice. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it is Stevie Wonder, whether it's the late Hugh Masakela, one of the greatest international jazz icons, you know, whether it is, you know, uh, Harry Belafonte, you know, and, and now we have, you know, up and coming, you know, uh, act, uh, you know, entertainers and so forth. So it's, uh, entertainment can be an important tool in that. Yes, definitely. Well, that was all my questions. All right. Well, those were very, very penetrating questions. We, you know, Tia tried to get us on the other side. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we got 99 problems. <laughs> I should have said listen to it on that thing, huh? <laughs> well, because, for I mean, we're coming to you and we're going to be doing some... Um, we're going to be doing some video aspects of it a little bit later, but we, we definitely want you to listen to us more. Um, so where can they find us on these social media spaces? You can follow us on Instagram at CRJ underscore DU. YouTube, the same um, headline. And if you have any questions for us, maybe you're in an area where you don't feel like you can be an activist. We are both telling you right now that you absolutely can. If you have an issue that you want to ask us, feel free to go ahead and email us at du center for racial justice at gmail.com. That again is du center for racial justice at gmail.com. Well, that is all the time we have. We would like to thank you for listening to our very first show. Um, if you hear anything in the background, that is our main director. That's going to be Dr. Esmail. I think we'll have him on the show next time just to kind of just to kind of bring him into the party. But until next time, I am Lawrence Weber. And I'm Tia Suggs, project coordinator. There we go. And we will see you guys next time. Thank you for listening. Bye.